720 podcast. I'm your host, Chase Life. Previously, we have been reading the book um, The Age of Reason by Thomas Paine. And uh, just a quick summary of the first seven chapters really just raising questions um, about the concept religion or more so the concept of a church as a um, governmental organization um, I'm almost tempted to take a, a stance to say that uh, <laughs> he might be the father of the uh, the uh, that religious sector uh, what is that a uh, God body? Uh, where where man is God, at least, you know, for lack of better terminology. <laughs> it's a joke. Um, but I, I don't want to drag this on too long. So let's start right back into it here. Chapter 8 of the New Testament. Thus much for the Bible. I now go on to the book called the New Testament. The New Testament. That is, the new will. As if there could be two wills of the Creator. Had it been the object or the intention of Jesus Christ to establish a new religion, he would undoubtedly have written the system himself or procured it to be written in his lifetime. But there is no publication extant authenticated with his name. All the books called the New Testament were written after his death. He was a Jew by birth and by profession, and he was the son of God in like manner that every other person is, for the creator is the father of all. The first four books called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do not give a history of the life of Jesus Christ, but only detached anecdotes of him. It appears from these books that the whole time of his being a preacher was not more than 18 months, and it was only during this short time that those men became acquainted with him. They make mention of him at the age of 12 years, sitting, they say, among the Jewish doctors, asking and answering them questions. As this was several years before their acquaintance with him began, it is most probable they had this anecdote from his parents. From this time, there is no account of him for about 16 years. Where he lived or how he employed himself during this interval is not known. Most probably, he was working at his father's trade, which was that of a carpenter. It does not appear that he had any school education, and the probability is that he could not write, for his parents were extremely poor, as appears from their not being able to pay for a bed when he was born. It is somewhat curious that the three persons whose names are the most universally recorded 
were of very obscure parentage. Moses was a foundling. Jesus Christ was born in a stable. And Muhammad was a mule driver. The first and the last of these men were founders of different systems of religion. But Jesus Christ founded no new system. He called men to the practice of moral virtues and the belief of one God. The great trait in his character is philanthropy. The manner in which he was apprehended shows that he was not much known at the time. And it shows also that the meetings he, he then held with his followers were in secret and that he had given over or suspended preaching publicly. Judas could no other ways betray him than by giving information where he was and pointing him out to the officers that went to arrest him. And the reason for employing and paying Judas to do this could arise only from the causes already mentioned, that of his not being much known and living concealed. The ideal of his concealment not only agrees very ill with his reputed divinity, but associates with it something of pusillanim, pusillanim, pus, <laughs> pusillanimity. There we go. <laughs> and his and his being betrayed, or in other words, his being apprehended on the information of one of his followers, shows that he did not intend to be apprehended, and consequently that he did not intend to be crucified. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Christ, excuse me. The Christian mythologists tell us that Christ died for the sins of the world, and that he came on purpose to die. Would it not then have been the same if he had died of a fever, or of the smallpox, of old age, or of anything else? The declaratory sentence, which they say was passed upon Adam, in case he ate of the apple, was not that thou shalt surely be crucified, but thou shalt surely die. The sentence was death and not the manner of dying. Crucifixion, therefore, or any other particular manner of dying, made no part of the sentence that Adam was to suffer. And consequently, even upon their own tactic, it can make no part of the sentence that Christ was to suffer in the room of Adam. A fever would have done as well as a cross if there was any occasion for either. This sentence of death, which they tell us was thus passed upon Adam, must either have meant dying naturally, that is, ceasing to live, or have meant what these mythologists call damnation. And consequently, the act of dying on the part of Jesus Christ must, according to their system, apply as a prevention to one or other of these two things happening to Adam and to us that it does not prevent our dying is evident because we all die. And if their accounts of longevity be true, men die faster since the crucifixion than before. And with respect to the second explanation, including with it the natural death of Jesus Christ as a substitute for the eternal death or damnation of all mankind, it is impertinently it is impertinently representing the creator as coming off or revoking the sentence by a pun or a quibble upon the word death. That manufacturer of quibbles, St. Paul, if he wrote the books that bear his name, has helped this quibble on by making another quibble upon the word of Adam, excuse me, the word Adam. He makes there to be two Adams, the one who sins, in fact, 
and suffers by proxy. The other who sins by proxy and suffers in fact. A religion thus interlarded with quibble, subterfuge, and pun has a tendency to instruct its professors in the practice of these arts. They acquire the habit without being aware of the cause. If Jesus Christ was the being which those mythologists tell us he was, and that he came into this world to suffer, which is a word they sometimes use instead of to die, the only real suffering he could have endured would have been to live. His existence here was a state of exilement or transportation from heaven, and the way back to his original country was to die. In fine, everything in this strange system is the reverse of what it pretends to be. It is the reverse of truth, and I become so tired of examining into its inconsistencies and absurdities that I hasten to the conclusion of it in order to proceed to something better. How much or what parts of the books called the New Testament were written by the persons whose names they bear is what we can know nothing of. Neither are we certain in what language they were originally written. The matters they now contain may be classed under two heads, anecdote and epistolary, oh, excuse me, epistolary correspondence. <clears throat> the four books already mentioned, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are altogether anecdotal. They relate events after they had taken place. They tell what Jesus Christ did and said and what others did and said to him. And in several instances, they relate the same event differently. Revelation is not necessarily out of the question with respect to those books, not only because of the disagreement of the writers, but because revelation cannot be applied to the relating of facts by the persons who saw them done, nor to the relating or recording of any discourse or conversation by those who heard it. The book called The Acts of the Apostles, an anonymous work, belongs also to this anecdotal part. All the other parts of the New Testament, except the book of enigmas called the Revelations, are a collection of letters <clears throat> excuse me, under the names of the epistles. And the forgery of letters has been such a common practice in the world that the probability is at least equal whether they are genuine or forged. One thing, however, is much less equivocal, which is that out of the matters contained in those books, together with the assistance of some old stories, the church has set up a system of religion very contradictory to the character of the person whose name it bears. It has set up a religion of pomp and of revenue in pretended imitation of a person whose life was humility and poverty. The invention of a purgatory and of the releasing of souls therefrom by prayers bought of the church with money. The selling of pardons, dispensations, and indulgences are revenue laws without bearing the name or carrying that appearance. But the case nevertheless is that those things derive their origin from the proxism of the crucifixion and the theory deduced therefrom, which was that one person could stand in the place of another and could perform meritorious services for him. The probability, therefore, is that the whole theory or doctrine of what is called the redemption 
which is said to have been accomplished by the act of one person in the room of another, was originally fabricated on purpose to bring forward and build all those secondary and pecuniary redemptions upon, and that the passages in the books upon which the idea of theory of excuse me of theory of redemption is built have been manufactured and fabricated for that purpose. Why are we to give this church credit when she tells us that those books are genuine in every part? any more than we give her credit for everything else she has told us or for the miracles she, excuse me, miracles she says she has performed. That she could fabricate writings is certain because she could write. And the composition of the writings in question is of that kind that anybody might do it. And that she did fabricate them is not more inconsistent with probability than that she should tell us, as she has done, that she could and did work miracles. Since, then, no external evidence can, at this long distance of time, be produced to prove whether the church fabricated the doctrine called redemption or not, for such evidence, whether for or against, would be subject to the same suspicion of being fabricated, the case can only be referred to the internal evidence which the thing carries of itself, and this affords a very strong presumption of its being a fabrication, for the internal evidence is that the theory or doctrine of redemption has for its basis an idea of pecuniary justice and not that of moral justice. If I owe a person money and cannot pay him, and he threatens to put me in prison, another person can take the debt upon himself and pay it for me. But if I have committed a crime, every circumstance of the case has changed. Moral justice cannot take the innocent for the guilty, even if the innocent would offer itself. To suppose justice to do this is to destroy the principle of its existence, which is the thing itself. It is then no longer justice. It is indiscriminate revenge. This single reflection will show that the doctrine of redemption is founded on a mere pecuniary idea corresponding to that of a debt which another person might pay. And as this pecuniary ideal corresponds again with the system of second redemptions obtained through the means of money given to the church for pardons, the probability is that the same persons fabricated both the one and the other of those theories. And that, in truth, there is no such thing as redemption. That's fabulous. And that man stands in the same relative condition with his maker he ever did stand since man existed. And that is the greatest consolation to think so. Let him believe this, and he will live more consistently and morally than any than by any other system. <clears throat> it is by being it is by his being taught to contemplate himself as an outlaw, as an outcast, as a beggar, as a mumper, as one thrown, as it were, on a dunghill, at an immense distance from his creator and who must make his approaches by creeping and cringing to intermediate thing, beings, excuse me, that he conceives either a contemptuous disregard for everything under the name of religion or becomes indifferent or turns what we call devout. In the latter case, his, he consumes his life in grief or the affectation of it. His prayers are reproaches. His humility is ingratitude. He calls himself a worm and the fertile earth a dunghill, and all the blessings of life by the thankless name of vanities. 
He despises the choicest gift of God to man, the gift of reason. And having endeavored to force upon himself the belief of a system against which reason revolts, he ungratefully calls it human reason, as if man could give reason to himself. Yet, with all this strange appearance of humility and this contempt for human reason, he ventures into the boldest presumptions. He finds fault with everything. His selfishness is never satisfied. His ingratitude is never at an end. He takes on himself to direct the Almighty what to do, even in the government of the universe. He prays to dictator, dictator, dictatorial, dictator, dictatorially. That's, that's, that's a, that's a word. All right, let's try it again. He prays dictatorially. When it is sunshine, he prays for rain. When it is rain, he prays for sunshine. He follows the same ideal in everything that he prays for. For what is the amount of all his prayers, but an attempt to make the Almighty change his mind and act otherwise than he does? It is as if he were to say, thou knowest not so well as I. Chapter 10. In what the true revelation consists. But some perhaps will say, are we to have no word of God, no revelation? I say yes, there is a word of God, there is a revelation. The word of God is the creation we behold, and it is in this word, which no human invention can counterfeit or alter, that God speaketh universally to man. Human language is local and changeable, and is therefore incapable of being used as the means of unchangeable and universal information. The idea that God sent Jesus Christ to publish, as they say, the glad tidings to all nations from one end of the earth unto the other is consistent only with the ignorance of those who know nothing of the extent of the world and who believed as those world saviors believed and continued to believe for several centuries. And that in contradiction to the discoveries of philosophers of the experience of navigators, that the earth was flat like a trencher and that a man not might walk to the end of it. But how was Jesus Christ to make anything known to all nations? He could speak but one language, which was Hebrew. And there are in the world several hundred languages. Scarcely any two nations speak the same language or understand each other. And as to translations, every man who knows anything of languages knows that it is impossible to translate from one language into another not only without losing a great part of the original, but frequently of mistaking the sense. And besides all this, the art of printing was wholly unknown at the time Christ lived. It is always necessary that the means that are to accomplish any end be equal to the accomplishment of that end, or the end cannot be accomplished. It is in this that the difference between finite and infinite power and wisdom discovers itself. Man frequently fails in accomplishing his end from a natural inability of the power to the purpose, excuse me, from the natural inability of the power to the purpose and frequently from the want of wisdom to apply power properly. But it is impossible for infinite power and wisdom to fail as man faileth. The means it useth are always equal to the end. But human language, more especially as there is not in universal language, 
is incapable of being used as a universal means of unchangeable and uniform information. And therefore, it is not the means that God useth in manifesting himself universally to man. It is only in the creation that all our ideas and conceptions of a word of God can unite. The creation speaketh a universal language independently of human speech or human language, multiplied and various as they be. It is an ever existing original which every man can read. It cannot be forged. It cannot be counterfeited. It cannot be lost. It cannot be altered. It cannot be suppressed. It does not depend upon the will of man whether it shall be published or not. It publishes itself from one end of the earth to the other. It preaches to all nations and to all worlds. And this word of God reveals to man all that is necessary for man to know of God. Do we want to contemplate his power? We see it in the immensity of the creation. Do we want to contemplate his wisdom? We see it in the unchangeable order by which this incomprehensible whole is governed. Do we want to contemplate his munif munificence? Excuse me. We see it in the abundance with which he fills the earth. Do we want to contemplate his mercy? We see it in his not withholding that abundance even from the unthankful. In fine, do we want to know what God is? Search not the book called the scripture, which any human hand might make but the scripture called the creation. Chapter 10. Concerning God and the lights cast on his existence and attributes by the Bible. The only idea man can affix to the name of God is that of a first cause, the cause of all things. And incomprehensibly difficult as it is for man to conceive what a first cause is, he arrives at the belief of it from the tenfold greater difficulty of disbelieving it. It is difficult beyond description to conceive that space can have no end, but it is more difficult to conceive an end. It is difficult beyond the power of man to conceive an, excuse me, an eternal duration of what we call time, but it is more impossible to conceive a time where, we, where there shall be no time. In like manner of reasoning, Everything we behold carries itself the internal evidence that it did not make itself. Every man is in evidence to himself that he did not make himself. Neither could his father make himself, nor his grandfather, nor any of his race. Neither could any tree, plant, or animal make itself. And it is this conviction arising from this evidence that carries us on. As it were, by necessity, to the belief of a first cause eternally existing, of a nature totally different to any material existence we know of, and by the power of which all things exist. And this first cause, excuse me, first cause, man calls God. It is only by the ex exercise of reason that man can discover God. Take away that reason, and he would be incapable of understanding anything. And in this case, it would be just as inconsistent to read even the book called the Bible to a horse as to a man. How then is it that those people pretend to reject reason? Almost the only parts in the book called the Bible that convey to us any idea of God are some chapters in Job and the 19th Psalm. 
I recollect no other. Those parts are true. I wonder if they're supposed to be oh, deistical. Deistical. I, I'll go with deistical. Those parts are true deistical compositions, for they treat of the deity through his works. They take the book of creation as the word of God. They refer to no other book. And all the inter excuse me, all the inferences they make are drawn from that volume. I insert in this place the 19th Psalm, as paraphrased into English verse by Addison. I, I recollect not the prose, and where I write this, I have not the opportunity of seeing it. <clears throat> Once a quick reading of Psalm 19, I assume. The spacious firmament on high, with all the blue ethereal sky, and spangled heavens a shining frame, their great original proclaim. The unwearied sun from day to day does his creator's power display, and publishes to every land the work of an almighty hand. Soon as the evening shades prevail, the moon takes up the wondrous tale, and nightly to the listening earth repeats the story of her birth. Whilst all the stars that round her burned and all the planets in their turn confirm the tidings as they roll and spread the truth from pole to pole. What though in solemn silence all move round this dark terrestrial ball? What though no real voice, no sound Amidst their radiant orbs be found. In reason's ear they all rejoice and utter forth a glorious voice, forever singing as they shine, the hand that made us is divine. It's powerful. What more does man want to know than that the hand over power that made these things is divine? is omnipotent, let him believe this with the force that is impossible to repel if he permits his reason to act and his rule of moral life will follow, of course. The illusions in Job have all of them the same tendency with this psalm, that of deducing or proving a truth that would, other, that would be otherwise unknown from truths already known. I recollect not enough of the passages in Job to insert them correctly, but there is one that occurs to me that is applicable to the subject I am speaking upon. Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty to perfection? I know not how the printers have pointed this passage, for I keep no Bible, but it contains two distinct questions that admit of distinct answers. First. Canst thou by searching find out God? Because in the first place, I know I did not make myself, and yet I have existence. And by searching into the nature of other things, I find that no other thing could make itself. And yet millions of other things exist. Therefore it is that I know by positive conclusion resulting from this search, that there is a power superior to all those things, and that power is God. Secondly, 
Canst thou find out the Almighty to perfection? No. Not only because the power and wisdom he has manifested in the structure of the creation that I behold is to me incomprehensible, but because even this manifestation, great as it is, is probably but a small display of that immensity of power and wisdom by which millions of other worlds, to me invisible by their distance, were created and continue to exist. It is evident that both of these questions were put to the reason of the person to whom they are supposed to have been addressed. And it is only by admitting the first question to be answered affirmatively that the second could follow. It would have been unnecessary and, and even absurd to have put a second question more difficult than the first. If the first question had been answered negatively, the two questions have different objects. The first refers to the existence of God the second to his attributes. Reason can discover the one, but it falls infinitely short in discovering the whole of the other. I recollect not a single passage in all the writings ascribed to the men called apostles that conveys any idea of what God is. Those writings are chiefly controversial, and the gloominess of the subject they dwell upon, that of a man dying in agony on a cross, is better suited to the gloomy genius of a monk in a cell by whom it is not impossible they were written than to any man breathing the open air of the creation. The only passage that occurs to me that has any reference to the works of God, but which only his power and wisdom can be known, is related to have been spoken by Jesus Christ as a remedy against distressful care. Behold the lilies of the field. They toil not. Neither do they spin. This, however, is far inferior to the illusions in Job and in the 19th Psalm, but it is similar in idea, and the modesty of the imagery is correspondent to the modesty of man. <clears throat> Chapter 11 Of the Theology of the Christians and the True Theology As to the Christian system of faith, it appears to me as a species of excuse me, atheism a sort of religious denial of God. It professes to believe in a man rather than in God. It is a compound made up chiefly of manism with but little de deism and is as near to atheism as twilight is to darkness. It introduces between man and his maker an opaque body, which it calls a redeemer, as the moon introduces her opaque self between the earth and the sun. It produces an and the sun, uh, between the earth and the sun, and it produces by this means a religious or an irreligious eclipse of light, that it has put the whole orbit of reason into shade. <clears throat> the effect of this obscurity has been that of turning everything upside down and representing it in reverse. And among the revolutions it has thus magically produced, it has made a revolution in theology. That which is now called natural philosophy, embracing the whole circle of science of which astronomy occupies the chief place, is the study of the works of God and of the power and wisdom of God in his works, and is the true theology. As to the theology that is now studied in its place, it is the study of human opinions and of human fancies concerning God. It is not the study of God himself in the works that he has made, 
but in the works of, or writings that man has made. It is not amongst, excuse me, it is not among the least of the men. Wow. Forgive me. And it is not among the least of the mischiefs that the Christian system has done to the world that it has been in the original and beautiful system of theology, like a beautiful innocent, to distress and reproach, to make room for the hag of superstition. <clears throat> the book of Job and the 19th Psalm, which even the church admits to be more ancient than the chronological order in which they stand in the book called the Bible, are theological orations conformable to the original system of theology. The internal evidence of those orations proves to a demonstration that the study and contemplation of the works of creation and of the power and wisdom of God revealed and manifested in those works made a great part of the religion devo religious devotion of the times in which they were written. And it was this devotion of study and contemplation that led to the discovery of the principles upon which what are now called sciences are established. And it is to the discovery of these principles that almost all of the arts are, excuse me, all the arts that contribute to the convenience of human life owe their existence. Every principal part has some science for its part, for its parent. <clears throat> Every principal art has some science for its parent, though the person who mechanically performs the work does not always and but very seldom perceive the connection. It is a fraud of the Christian system to call the sciences human inventions. It is only the application of them that is human. Every science has for its basis a system of principles as fixed and unalterable as those by which the universe is regulated and governed. Man cannot make principles. He can only discover them. For example, every person who looks at an almanac sees in an account when an eclipse will take place, and he sees also that it never fails to take place according to the account they're given. This shows that man is acquainted with the laws by which the heavenly bodies move. But it would be something worse than ignorance were any church on earth to say that those laws are a human invention. It would also be ignorance or something worse to say that the scientific principles by the aid of which man is enabled to calculate and foreknow when an eclipse will take place are a human invention. Man cannot invent anything that is eternal and immutable. And the scientific principles he employs for this purpose must and are of necessity as eternal and immutable as the laws by which the heavenly bodies move where they cannot be used as they are to ascertain the time when and the manner how an eclipse will take place. The scientific principles that man employs to obtain the foreknowledge of an eclipse or of anything else relating to the, to the motion of the heavenly bodies are contained chiefly in that part of science that is called trigonometry or the properties of a triangle, which when applied to the study of the heavenly bodies is called astronomy. When applied to direct the course of a ship on the ocean, it is called navigation. When applied to the construction of figures drawn by a ruling compass, it is called geometry. When applied to the construction of plans of edifices, it is called 
architecture. When applied to the measurement of any proportion of the surface of the earth, it is called land surveying. In fine, it is the soul of science. It is the eternal truth. It contains the mathematical demonstration of which man speaks and the extent of its uses are unknown. <clears throat> it may be said that man can make or draw a triangle and therefore a triangle is a human invention. But the triangle when drawn is no other than the image of the principle. It is a delineation to the eye and from thence to the mind of a principle that would otherwise be imperceptible. The triangle does not make the principle any more than a candle taken into a room that was dark makes the chairs and tables that before were invisible. All the properties of a triangle exist independently of the figure and existed before any triangle was drawn or thought of by man. Man had no more to do in the formation of those properties or principles than he had to do in the making of laws by which the heavenly bodies moved and therefore one must have the same divine origin as the other. In the same manner as, it may be said, that man can make a triangle, so also may it be said, he can make the mechanical instrument called a lever. But the principle by which, excuse me, but the principle by which the lever acts is a thing distinct from the instrument, and would exist if the instrument did not. It attaches itself to the instrument after it is made. The instrument, therefore, can act no otherwise than it does act. Neither can all the efforts of human invention make it act otherwise. That which, in all such cases, man's call, man calls the effect is no other than the principle itself rendered perceptible to the senses. Since, then, man cannot make principles, from whence did he gain a knowledge of them, so as to be able to apply them, not only things on earth, but to ascertain the motion of bodies so immensely distant from him as all the heavenly bodies are. From whence, I ask, could he gain that knowledge, but from the study of the true theology? It is the structure of the universe that he that has taught this knowledge to man. That structure is an ever-existing exhibition of every principle upon which every part of mathematical science is founded. The offspring of this science is mechanics. For mechanics is no other than the principles of science applied practically. The man who proportions the several parts of a mill uses the same scientific principles as if he had the power of constructing a universe. But as he cannot give to matter that invisible agency by which all the component parts of the immense machine of the universe have influence upon each other and act in motion or unison together without any apparent contact and to which man has given the name of attraction, gravitation and repulsion he supplies the place of that agency by the humble imitation of teeth and cogs all the parts of man's microcosm mostly uh, must visibly touch but could he gain a knowledge of that agency so as to be able to apply it in practice we might then say that another can uh, canonical book of the word of god had been discovered if a man could alter the properties of the lever so also could he alter the properties of the triangle. For a lever, taking the sort of lever which is called a steel yard, for the sake of explanation, forms, when in motion, a triangle. The line it descends from, one point of that line being in the fulcrum, the line it descends to, and the cord of the arc, 
which the end of the lever describes in the air are the three sides of a triangle. The other arm of the lever describes also a triangle. And the corresponding sides of those two triangles calculated scientifically or measured geometrically and also the sines, tangents, and secants generated from the angles and geometrically measured have the same proportions to each other as the different weights have that will balance each other on the lever, leaving the weight of the lever out of the cause, excuse me, out of the case. It may also be said that man can take a wheel and axie, that he can put wheels of different magnitudes together and produce a mill. Still, the case comes back to the same point, which is that he did not make the principle that gives the wheels those powers. This principle is an unalterable as in the former cases, or rather it is the same principle under a different appearance to the eye. The power that two wheels of different magnitudes have upon each other is, this, is in the same proportion as if the semi-diameter of the two wheels were joined together and made into the kind of lever. I have described suspended at the part where the semi-diameters were joined. For the two wheels scientifically considered are no other than the two circles generated by the motion of the compound lever. It is from the study of the true theology that all our knowledge of science is derived, and it is from that knowledge that all the arts have originated. The almighty lecturer, by displaying the principles of science and the structure of the universe, has invited man to study and to imitation. It is as if he said, excuse me, it is as if he had said to the inhabitants of this globe that we call ours, I have made an earth for man to dwell upon, and I have rendered the starry heavens visible to teach him science and the arts. He can now provide for his own comfort and learn from my munificence to all to be kind to each other. Of what use is it unless it to be to teach man something that his eyes endowed with the power of beholding? to an incomprehensible distance, an immensity of worlds revolving in the same, excuse me, in the ocean of space. Or, of what use is it that this immensity of worlds be visible to man? <clears throat> what has man to do with the Pleiades, with the, Ple with the Pleiades, with Orion and Sirius, with the star he calls the North Star, with the moving orbs he has named Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Venus, and Mercury, if no uses are to follow from their being visible. A less power of vision would have been sufficient for man, if the immensity he now possesses were given only to waste itself, as it were, on an immense desert of space glittering with shows. It is only by contemplating what he calls the starry heavens, as the book and school of science, that he discovers any use in their being visible to him, or any advantage resulting from his immensity of vision. But when he contemplates the subject in his light, he sees an additional motive for saying that nothing was made in vain. For in vain would be this power of vision, excuse me, for in vain would be this power of vision if it taught man nothing. Chapter 11, The Effects of Christianism on Education, Proposed Reforms. As the Christian system of faith has made a revolution in theology, so also had it, has it made a revolution in the state of learning. That which is now called learning was not learning originally. Learning does not consist, as the schools now make it consist, in the knowledge of languages but in the knowledge of things to which language gives names. 
excuse the page turning. The Greeks were learned people, but learning with them did not consist in speaking Greek any more than in a Roman speaking Latin or a Frenchman speaking French or an Englishman speaking English. From what we know of the Greeks, it does not appear that they knew or studied any language but their own. And this was one cause of their becoming so learned. It afforded them no time to apply themselves to better studies. The schools of the Greeks were schools of science and philosophy and not of languages. And it is in the knowledge of the things that science and philosophy teach that learning consists. Almost all the scientific learning that now exists came to us from the Greeks or the people who spoke the Greek language. It therefore became necessary to the people of other nations who spoke a different language that some among them should learn the Greek language in order that the learning the Greeks had might be made known in those nations by translating the Greek books of science and philosophy into the mother tongue of each nation. The study, therefore, of the Greek language, and in the same manner for the Latin, was no other than the drudgery business of a linguist, and the language thus obtained was no other than the means or, as it were, the tools employed to obtain the learning the Greeks had. It made no part of the learning itself, and was so distinct from it as to make it exceedingly probable that the persons who had studied Greek sufficiently trans, excuse me, sufficiently to translate those works, such, for instance, as Euclid's Elements, did not understand any of the learning the works contained. As there is now nothing new to be learned from the dead languages, all the useful books being already translated, the languages are becoming useless, and the time expended in the teaching and in learning them is wasted. So far as the study of languages may contribute to the progress and communication of knowledge, for it has nothing to do with the creation of knowledge, it is only in the living languages that new knowledge is to be found. And certain it is that, in general, a youth will learn more of a living language in one year than of a dead language in seven. And it is but seldom that the teacher knows much of it himself. The difficulty of learning the dead languages does not arise from any superior abstruseness in the language themselves, but in their being dead and the pronunciation entirely lost. It would be the same thing with any other language when it becomes dead. The best Greek linguist that now exists does not understand Greek so well as a Grecian plowman or a Grecian milkmaid. Excuse me, ah, uh, does not, okay, the best, uh, typo in the book here. The best Greek linguist that now exists does not understand Greek so well as a Grecian plowman did or a Grecian milkmaid. And the same for the Latin compared with a plowman or milkmaid of the Romans. And with respect to pronunciation and idiom, not so well as the cows that she milked. It would therefore be advantageous to the state of learning to abolish the study of the dead languages and to make learning consist as it originally did in scientific knowledge. The apology that is sometimes made for continuing to teach the dead languages is that they are taught at a time when a child is not capable of exerting any other mental faculty than that of memory. But this is altogether erroneous. The human mind has a natural disposition to scientific knowledge and to the things connected with it. The first and favorite amusement of a child, even before it begins to play, is that of imitating the works of man. It builds houses with cards or sticks and navigates the little ocean of a bowl of water with a paper boat or dams the stream of a gutter and contrives something in what it calls a mill. And it interests itself, interests itself in the fate of its work with a care that resembles affection. 
It afterwards goes to school, where its genius is killed by the barren study of a dead language and the philosopher is lost in the linguist. But the apology that is now made for continuing to teach the dead languages could not be the cause at first of cutting down learning to the narrow and humble sphere of linguistry. The cause, therefore, must be sought for elsewhere. In all researches of this kind, the best evidence that can be produced is the internal evidence the thing carries with itself and the evidence of circumstances that unites with it, both of which in this case are not difficult to be discovered. Putting then aside as matter of distinct consideration, the outrage offered to the moral justice of God by supposing him to make the innocent suffer for the guilty and also lose morality and low contrivance of supposing him to change himself into the shape of a man in order to make an excuse to himself for not executing his supposed sentence upon Adam. Putting, I say, those things aside as matter of distinct consideration, it is certain that what is called the Christian system of faith, including in it the whimsical account of the creation, the strange story of Eve, the snake, and the apple, the amphibious idea of a man-god, the corporeal, the corporeal idea of the death of God, the mythological idea of a family of gods, and the Christian system of arithmetic, that three are one and one is three, all are irreconcilable, not only to the divine gift of reason that God has given to man, but to the knowledge that man gains of the power and wisdom of God by this aid of the sciences, and by studying the structure of the universe that God has made. The setters up, therefore, and the advocates of the Christian system of faith cannot but foresee that the continually progressive knowledge that man would gain by the aid of science, of the power and wisdom of God, manifested in the structure of the universe and in all the works of creation, would militate against and call into question the truth of their system of faith. And therefore, it became necessary to their purpose to cut learning down to a size less dangerous to their project. And this they effected by restricting the idea of learning to the dead study of dead languages. They are not only rejected, they not only reject the study of science out of the Christian schools, but they also persecuted it. And it is only within about the last two centuries that the study has been revived. So late as 1610, Galileo, a Florentine, discovered and introduced the use of telescopes, and by applying them to observe the motion and appearance of the heavenly bodies, afforded additional means for ascertaining the true structure of the universe. Instead of being esteemed for these discoveries, he was sentenced to renounce them, or the opinions resulting from them, as a damnable, her as a damnable heresy. And prior to that time, Virgilius, was condemned to be burned for asserting the antipodes, or in other words, that the earth was a globe and habitable in every part where there was land. Yet the truth of this is now too well known even to be told. If the belief of errors, not morally bad, did no mischief, it would make no part of the moral duty of man to oppose and remove them. There was no moral ill in believing the earth was flat like a trencher any more than there was moral virtue in believing it was round like a globe. Neither was there any moral ill in believing that the Creator made no other worlds than this, any more than there was more moral virtue in believing that He made millions, and that the infinity of space is filled with worlds. But when a system of religion is made to grow out of a supposed system of creation that is not true, and to unite itself therewith is a manner almost inseparable therefrom, 
the case assumes an entirely different ground. It is then that errors not morally bad become fraught with the same mischiefs as if they were. It is then that the truth, though otherwise indifferent itself, becomes an essential by becoming the criterion that either forms by corresponding evidence or denies by contradictory evidence the reality of the religion itself. In this view of the case, it is the moral duty of man to obtain every possible evidence that the structure of the heavens or any part, or excuse me, or any other part of creation affords with respect to the system of religion. But this, the supporters of partisans and excuse me, the supporters or partisans of the Christian system, as if dreading the result, incessantly opposed and not only rejected the sciences, but persecuted the professors. Had Newton or Descartes lived three or four hundred years ago and pursued their studies as they did, it is most probable they would not have lived to finish them. And had Franklin drawn lightning from the clouds at the same time, it would have been at the hazard of expiring for it in flames. Later times have laid all the blame upon the Goths and Vandals. But, however unwilling the partisans of the Christian system may be to believe or to acknowledge it, it is nevertheless true that the age of ignorance commenced with the Christian system. There was more knowledge in the world before that period than for many centuries afterwards. And as to religious knowledge, the Christian system, as already said, was only another species of mythology, and the mythology to which it succeeded was a corruption of an ancient system of theism. It is owing to this long interregnum of science and to no other cause that we have now to look back through a vast chasm of many hundreds of years to the respectable characters we call the ancients. Had the, excuse me, had the progression of knowledge gone on proportionably with the shock, with the stock that had before existed, that chasm would have been filled up with the characters rising superior in knowledge to each other. And those ancients we now so much admire would have appeared respectably in the background of the scene. But the Christian system laid all waste, and if we take our stand about the beginning of the 16th century, we look back through that long chasm to the times of the ancients, as over a vast sandy desert in which not a shrub appears to intercept the vision of the fertile hills beyond. It is an inconsistency scarcely possible to be credited that anything should exist under the name of a religion that held it to be irreligious to study and contemplate the structure of the universe that God has made. But the fact is too well established to be denied. The event that served more than any other to break the first link in this long chain of despotic ignorance is that known by the name of the Re Reformation by Luther. From that time, though it does not appear to have made any part of the intention of Luther or of those who called reformers, the sciences began to revive and liberality, their natural associate, began to appear. This was the only public good the Reformation did, for, with respect to religious good, it might as well not have taken place. The mythology still continued the same, and a multiplicity of national popes grew out of the downfall of the Pope of Christendom. Chapter 13, I think we can squeeze one more chapter in here. Comparison of Christianism with the religious ideal inspired by nature. 
having thus shown from the internal evidence of things that cause, excuse me, the cause that produced a change in the state of learning and the motive for substituting the study of the dead languages in the place of the sciences, I proceed, in addition to the several observations already made in the formal part of this work, to compare, or rather to confront, the evidence that the structure of the universe affords with the Christian system of religion. But as I cannot begin this part better than by referring to the ideas that occurred to me at an early part of life, in which I doubt not have occurred in the same degree to almost every other person at one time or other, I shall state what those ideals were and add thereto such other matter as shall arise out of the subject, giving to the whole by way of preface a short introduction. My father being of the Quaker profession, it was my good fortune to have an exceedingly good moral education and a tolerable stock of useful learning. Though I went to the grammar school, I did not learn Latin, not only because I had no inclination to learn languages, but because of the objection the Quakers have against the books in which the language is taught. But this did not prevent me from being acquainted with the subjects of all the Latin books used in the school. The natural bent of my mind was to science. I had some turn and I believe some talent for poetry, but this I rather repressed than encouraged as leading too much into the field of imagination. As soon as I was able, I purchased a pair of globes and attended the, philosoph the philosophical lectures of Martin and Ferguson and became afterwards acquainted with Dr. Beavis of the society called the Royal Society, then living in the temple and an excellent astronomer. I had no disposition for what was called politics. It presented to my mind no other idea than is contained in the word jockeyship. When, therefore, I turned my thoughts towards matters of government, I had to form a system for myself that accorded with the moral and philosophic principles in which I had been educated. I saw, or at least I thought I saw, a vast scene opening itself to the world in the affairs of Americans. It appeared to me that unless with the, the Americans changed the plan they were then pursuing with respect to the government of England and declared themselves independent, they would not only involve themselves in a multiplicity of new difficulties, but shut out the prospect that was then offering itself to mankind through their means. It was from these motives that I published the work known by the name of Common Sense which is the first work I ever did publish, and so far I can judge of myself. I believe I should never have been known in the world as an author on any subject whatever had it not been for the affairs of America. I wrote Common Sense, the latter end of the year 1775, and published it in the 1st of January, 1776. Independence was declared the 4th of July following. Any person who has made observation on the state and progress of the human kind by observing his own cannot but have observed that there are two distinct classes of what are called thoughts. Those that we produce in ourselves by reflection in the act of thinking and those that bolt into the mind of their own accord. I have always made it a rule to treat those voluntary visitors with civility, taking care to examine as well as I was able if they were worth entertaining and it is from them I have acquired almost all the knowledge that I have. As to the learning that any person gains from school education, it serves only like a small capital to put him in the way of beginning learning for himself afterwards. 
Every person of learning is finally his own teacher. The reason of which is that principles being of a distinct quality to circumstances cannot be impressed upon the memory. Their place of mental residence is the understanding and they are never so lasting as when they begin by conception. Thus much for the introductory part. From the time I was capable of conceiving an idea and acting upon it by reflection, I either doubted the truth of the Christian system or thought it to be a strange affair. I scarcely knew which it was, but I well remember when about seven or eight years of age, hearing a sermon read by a relation of mine, who was a great devotee of the church, upon the subject of what is called redemption by the death of the Son of God. After the sermon was ended, I went into the garden, and as I was going down the garden steps, for I perfectly recollect the spot, I revolted at the recollection of what I had heard and thought to myself that it was making God Almighty act like a passionate man that killed his son when he could not revenge himself any other way. And as I was sure a man would, would be hanged that did such a thing, I could not see for what purpose they preached such sermons. This was not one of those kind of thoughts that had anything in it of childish levity. It was to me a serious reflection arising from the idea I had that God was too good to do such an action and also too almighty to be in under any necessity, excuse me, necessity of doing it. I believe in the same manner to this moment, and I moreover believe that any system of religion that has anything in it that shocks the mind of a child cannot be true system. It seems as if parents of the Christian profession were ashamed to tell their children anything about the principles, excuse me, principles of the religion. They sometimes instruct them in morals and talk to them of the goodness of what they call providence. For the Christian, excuse me, for the Christian mythology have five deities. There is God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Ghost, God, the God providence, and the goddess nature. But the Christian story of God and Father putting his son to death or employing people to do it, for that is the plain language of the story, cannot be told by a parent to a child. And to tell him that it was done to make mankind happier and better is making the story still worse, as if mankind could be improved by the example of murder. And to tell him that all that all this is a mystery is only making an excuse for the incredibility of it. How different is this to the pure and simple profession of deism? The true deist has but one deity, and his religion consists in contemplating the power, wisdom, and benignity of the deity in his works. And in, endeavor, and in endeavoring to imitate him in everything moral, imitate him in everything moral, scientific and mechanical. The religion that approaches the nearest of all others to true deism is the moral and benign part thereof, is that professed by the Quakers. But they have contracted themselves too much by leaving the works of God out of their system. Though I reverence their philanthropy, I cannot help smiling at the conceit that if the taste of a Quaker could have been consulted at the creation, what a silent and drab colored creation would have been. Not a flower would have blossomed its gaieties, nor a bird been permitted to sing. Quitting these reflections, I proceed to other matters. After I had made myself master of the use of the globes and of the orary, I believe that's a library. Uh, is this 
bear with me, this is an asterisk. As this book may fall into the hands of persons who do not know what an orrery is, it is for their information I add this note as the same. As the name gives no idea of the use of, <laughs> uses of the thing, the orrery has its name from the person who invented it. It is a machinery of clockwork representing the universe in miniature and in which the revolution of the earth round itself and round the sun, the revolution of the moon round the earth, the revolution of the planets around the sun, their relative distance from the sun as the center of the whole system, their relative distance from each other and their different magnitudes are represented as they really exist in what we call the heavens. Oh, orrery. All right. Orrery. Orrery. I'll go with orrery. Okay. Uh, after I made myself master of the use of the globes and of the orrery and conceived an idea of the infinity of space and of the eternal divisibility of matter and obtained at least a general knowledge of what was called natural philosophy, I began to compare, or as I have said before, to confront the internal evidence those things afford with the Christian system of faith. Though it is not a direct article of the Christian system, that this world that we inhabit is the whole of the habitable creation, Yet it is so worked up therewith from what is called the mosaic account of the creation, the story of Eve and the apple, and the counterpart of that story, the death of the Son of God, that to, be, that to believe otherwise, that is, to believe that God created a plurality of worlds, at least as numerous as what we call stars, renders the Christian system of faith at once little and ridiculous, and scatters it in the mind like feathers in the air. The two beliefs cannot be held together in the same mind. And he who thinks that he believes both has thought but little of either. Though the belief of a plurality of worlds was familiar to the ancients, it is only within the last three centuries that the extent of dimensions of this globe that we inhabit have been ascertained. Several vessels following the tract of the oceans have sailed entirely around the world as a man may march in a circle and come round by the contrary side of the circle to the spot he set out from. The circular dimensions of our world in the widest part, as a man would measure the widest round of an apple or a ball, is only 25,020 English miles, reckoning 69 miles and a half to an equatorial degree, and may be sailed round in the space of about three years. <clears throat> a world of this extent may, at first thought, appear to us to be great. But if we compare it with the immensity of a space in which it is suspended, like a bubble or a balloon in the air, it is infinitely less in proportion than the smallest grain of sand is to the size of the world, or the finest particle due to the whole ocean. It is therefore but small, and as will be hereafter shown, is only one of a system of worlds of which the universal creation is composed. It is not difficult to gain some faint idea of the immensity of space in which this and all the other worlds are suspended, if we follow a progression of ideas. When we think of the size of dimension of a room, our ideas limit themselves to the walls, and there they stop. But when our eye or our imagination darts into space, that is, when it looks upward into what we call the open air, we cannot conceive any walls or boundaries it can have. And if for the sake of resting our ideas we suppose a boundary, the question immediately renews itself and asks, what is beyond that boundary? And in the same manner, what beyond the next boundary? And so on till the fatigued imagination returns and says, there is no end. Certainly, then, the Creator was not pent for room when he made this world, no larger than it is. 
and we have to seek the reason in something else. If we take a survey of our own world, or rather of this, of which the creator is given, excuse me, if we take a survey of our own world, or rather of this, of which the creator has given us the use as our portion in the immense system of creation, we find every part of it, the earth, the water, the air that surrounded, filled, and as if it were crowded with life, down from the largest animals that we know of to the smallest insects, excuse me, the insects the naked eye can behold, and from thence to others still smaller and totally invisible without the assistance of the microscope. Every tree, every plant, every leaf serves not only as an as a habitation, but as a world to some numerous race, till animal existence becomes so exceedingly refined that the effluvia of a blade of grass would be food for thousands. Since then, no part of our earth is left unoccupied. Why is it to be supposed that the immensity of space is a naked void lying in eternal waste? There is room for millions of worlds, as large or larger than ours, and each of them millions of miles apart from each other. Having now arrived at this point, if we carry our ideas only one thought further, we shall see, perhaps, the true reason, at least a very good reason for our happiness, why the Creator, instead of making one immense world, extending over an immense quantity of space, has preferred dividing that quantity of matter into several distinct and separate worlds, which we call planets, of which our Earth is one. But before I explain my ideas upon this subject, it is necessary, not for the sake of those that already know, but for those who do not, to show what the system of the universe is. <clears throat> Just a moment here. Chapter 13, the system of the, excuse me, chapter 14, system of the universe. So we'll be picking back up next week. Um, just a few more thoughts, chapters 8 through 13. Um, again, I'm finding no answers, but more um, topics to ponder on. You know, when we talk of religion, it very much seems that everything is based off of this land that we live on and that we will have to die to see anything different. Flip side to that coin, those who seem to or appear to not have a religion or aren't as devout as you know, some may prefer um, choosing science as the religion. Are attempting to then take us or take themselves or however, just to see, which even then is kind of uh, pushing the will of God. Cause you know, if he wanted interstellar or intergalactic travel, of course there would be a way. But then I'd be remiss to say that if there is a way, it just hasn't been, excuse me, hasn't been found just yet.
And that couldn't just be based on humanity's lack of scientific exploration as a whole. Because um, it seems as the people, uh, we're all more involved in being um, gears and motors in technology instead of using the technology as a mode of transportation or a vessel. Um, who's to say that the signal that provides you know, everyone with in, uh, internet access isn't the same signal that is used to teleport to another world? And instead of using it for what it's worth or what it's based for, um, it's been repurposed. And now everyone's taking a blind eye towards what could be possible. Um, I've mentioned before a quote. Before I even read this book, again, we're reading this in real time. Um, I'm not skipping pages. I'm not going ahead when I'm not on. I'm reading it in real time. Uh, but the quote being that most people do not think past their own thoughts. Um, and he speaks to that. And we're talking about a book from 200 some odd years ago, 250 close to uh, where, you know, people are afraid of these boundaries or they realize there's boundaries and they don't push forward or they feel comfort in this bubble. Um, but I had spoken, you know, to, to you know, a few people, even, even my father, um, about these, these ceilings the glass ceilings that appear to, to exist not only in internally in oneself, you know, with just becoming a better person, um, but also in society where um, it almost appears that we as humans can't get out of our own way. Um, just as a thought, not that anyone should do it, but it's a thought. If everybody decided that one day a week, there would be nothing done. The country and America, hell, the world, excuse the language, the world shuts down for one day. There will be no business. There will be no, 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 no travel. Not because you can't, just because you do it all day, every day. From the time that you're afforded the opportunity to uh, provide a better a situation uh, or lifestyle for yourself or your family um, to the day you die, uh, you know, because retirement isn't always cracked up to be. I've spoken to some of these uh, people who are above the age of 66, 67, and they still work. Some of them out of necessity and some of them because doing nothing is worse than death. There's no excuse long-term if we are, if we can all just come to one agreement of let's, let's shut everything down. What would be more effective is if as a people, as a society, separate from those infrastructures that conduct business, we allow, or not, not allow, allow is a terrible word. Um, we care less whether they operate on this day that we decide that we are doing nothing. 
And it not, not, not just one day a month, it's one day a week. And it let it be interchangeable. Keep them on their toes. No, I'm not trying to disrupt business and commerce. Um, but mathematically, we have been on a linear path of seven days a week, 24 hours a day, something's open, something's available. 200 years ago, that didn't exist. Streetlights didn't exist 100 years ago. So, Says that every new invention is not new or an invention, but an already predetermined principle being made visible to the human eye. And all based off a triangle. I think normally I would keep this to an hour, but um, some about that triangle is sticking out to me here. Anyone who's done reading or, um, you know, has even been on the Internet has heard of this, quote unquote, Illuminati, uh, the Illumination, the Illuminated Ones, the Enlightened Ones. Um, and, and it's always some some uh, idolatry or some depiction that incorporates a triangle and inside that triangle being an eyeball. And if I'm reading what I'm reading here properly, it is saying that to an extent, which is that the triangle mathematically is what is used to bring vision or bring these principles to sight. Whether it's a, a, a lever, um, whether we're talking the arc on a spiral thrown by, you know, your favorite quarterback or the, the arc on your favorite jump shot by, you know, Stephen Curry or whoever. Um, triangles. Trajectory. Um, I read a book, you know, years back regarding numerology. Um, and it spoke there much, very much so of such um where there's the zero, there's the one, and there's the two. It's still three. And if, you know, we're talking trinities, something about TR, um, we're talking trinity, it's still one, two, three. Um, zero, one, and two being the base numbers of, of, of numerology. Um, you can build a proper chair with three legs. You do not need four legs for a chair. Three will suffice. All you need is a triangle or pyramid in shape. Um, I think I'm running off on a tangent. Uh, ultimately, from my excitement that I'm experiencing at the moment, um, what I'm getting off this book here isn't isn't a bunch of uh, you know, I hey I'm, I'm I'm a free thinker and I'm just throwing out random thoughts. It is genuinely an inquisition um, regarding one's own ability to think beyond what is in front of you. 
at this moment, I have a computer, a laptop, and a microphone in front of me. But for the last two and a half minutes, my eyes were kind of closed as I went beyond what was in front of me for just two seconds, just two seconds, two and a half minutes, but two seconds, very short period of time beyond my current position in this earth. Still speaking, but whatever. All right, let me go. Um, Hope you enjoyed the new music. I put some new intro music out there. Um, Some royalty things going on, so I decided to grab an uh, MPC board and uh, create uh, some instrumentals there. So I'll be incorporating some uh, some personally designed uh, music for the uh, for these 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 recordings here. Um, don't forget to check out the website chaselife720.com. Um, if looking for any religious or spiritual matters, don't forget to check out the website at chaselife720ministries.com. Um, as the earth is of abundance, um, I I fear not of growing from it. So I'll have a grow channel as well uh, on YouTube. Just look out uh, Chase Life 720 Media. Chase Life, all one word, space 720 Media, all one word. Um, Chase Life. Take care.